Welcome to the Tech Suite, your go-to source for the latest legal updates on the fastest moving sector, brought to you by Minter Allison Rudwatts. I'm your host, Rodney Craig, a partner in our corporate and commercial team. Today, I'm joined by Jane Parker, one of my fellow partners specialising in commercial contracting. Hi there, Rodney. Hey, Jane. I've spent a lot of time working with early stage startups throughout my career and have seen a lot of them raise capital through numerous rounds and also helped a number successfully exit to new owners. In today's podcast, I'm quite keen to talk about one important structural matter that can make the journey a little easier for growing companies, and that's giving early consideration to whether to include a holding company in your initial corporate structure. I should say before we begin that nothing we're discussing today is legal advice. Tēnā koutou katoa to everyone out there. Rodney, you're an expert in this field and we often work together on the same clients who are just starting out or maybe they've gone through a couple of rounds of raising capital beforehand but inevitably they need more money. When a lot of these startup companies are established, the founders usually just set themselves up with a single company, right? That's correct Uh, and it makes a lot of sense to use a company uh, for a number of reasons. Using a company is simple, it's well understood um, by everyone who will be dealing with you, including customers, suppliers, employees, investors, financiers, etc. Also, a company is a good vehicle for raising funds from investors. A company can issue shares, it can access many of the exemptions available in the Financial Markets Conduct Act, and by that I mean being able to issue shares to eligible and wholesale investors without having to do Uh, expensive disclosure documents. And also investors can have confidence that the Companies Act will apply. There's a lot of rules in the Companies Act that are designed to protect shareholders and provide a governance framework for the company. That's a useful reason for using a company in the first place. Yeah, totally, because the company is just an age-old vehicle now that so many people are familiar with and Mm. that creates that certainty that you're talking about, right? That's right and the Companies Act has been well tested in courts over many years and uh, it's well understood by lawyers and and directors uh, and investors so it's uh, a good good, uh, reason to use a company and probably one of the most fundamental reasons to use a company uh, is that it provides shareholders with the benefit of limited liability if things don't work out financially for the business. So in terms of that, when you start out with the single standard company structure, using all of those well-known principles and all of those benefits that you've just talked to, is there anything else that they might think about in terms of that early setup stage? Yeah, for sure. And as we'll come to shortly, there is a slight tweak, which is really what we want to talk about today, which is instead of just using a single company structure, you could potentially introduce a second company as a holding company into the structure. And so how would that work? So you have a holding company in which the founders and the initial investors hold shares, and that holding company itself has a subsidiary company, which is the operating company that owns and runs the underlying business. So you'd have two companies. You'd have the operating company, which does all the day-to-day stuff and all of the relationship with customers and suppliers, but sitting above that, you would have a holding company. Correct. It effectively holds the interest in the in that subsidiary, and it's the company in which all the investors come into, and it's the sort of governance vehicle, if you like. And does that holding company do anything in its own right, by way of relationships with suppliers or customers? Not directly with third parties, other than potentially the investors and maybe financiers, and maybe it gives guarantees for certain suppliers. For instance, the landlord might require it. 
but otherwise it sort of sits there and it has a sole purpose is to hold shares in the subsidiary company. So let's just imagine the life cycle of this company. It's been set up and whatever that might look like at that stage and after a little while it's starting to go really well. They've worked out that this is a business proposition that's got some potential and they're wanting to scale up and they'll need money either to continue or maybe to expand their operations and they need money to be able to do that, right? Correct. Most startup and early stage companies go through a pretty similar growth journey and that typically involves an initial stage of bootstrapping, which is just really using the founder's own money plus maybe some cash flow generated from the business and maybe some additional funding from close friends and family. And then once the company's got some runs on the board and a better story to tell external investors, then it will look to obtain some additional growth capital from external investors by issuing them shares in return for uh, an equity investment into the company. But of course, by bringing on new external investors, it was going to require those investors to enter into a shareholders agreement, so that uh, which sets out how the company will be governed, and it will include uh, certain provisions that help protective provisions for those investors. And by that I mean it will include requirements for certain transactions to be approved by shareholders, for instance related party transactions or significant or large transactions. And it will also include, uh, importantly, preemptive rights on share transfers and share issues. And just because we're going to refer to preemptive rights a bit later on, so a preemptive right is one where you have to offer those shares to existing shareholders before you offer them to external investors so that the existing investors or shareholders have an ability to maintain their percentage shareholding in the business. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like when you're thinking about that shareholder agreement Mm. as a whole, because you've got all of these shareholders now that are putting their money Mm. on the line, they're putting it into the company, and they want to know that it's going to be managed and invested in a way that they're comfortable with and give them that comfort right from the outset. It It basically supplements the rules that are in the Companies Act that we talked about before. So it amends them to tailor them for the specific company and it, will, and, and it will be they're pretty standard these days for most startups there's a pretty standard set of rules that most people uh, agree to um, which makes it pretty easy to document and so important to get that right at the outset though correct right? and then so once you've got those external some some external investment into there you're sort of into that scale up phase you're spending that money on further growth and then um, you might need that money for instance to uh, you know for sales and marketing activities product development maybe expanding overseas or maybe even acquiring other smaller businesses. And so all those things require capital, and the likelihood is over time you're going to need to go through a series of rounds of capital raising. So you might need to go back to your shareholders or new investors for every year or so. And over time, what that means is you're going to end up with more and more shareholders as you go through these various capital raising rounds. And that in turn means your company's going to look quite a lot different than it did at the beginning. You're going from a situation where... You've got a founder and maybe a couple of other friends and family quite know each other um, and very closely held to a situation where you've got a, a wide shareholder base with people who may or may not know each other. And so that's going to need a more formal way of governing the company and communicating with the shareholders. And so now that you've got that whole growth stage ahead of you or you're right in the midst of it, then you can see that some of those decisions that were made around the early company structure and the way that that's all put together, that can have a real impact at this stage, right? Yeah, well, that's bang on. So the change from having just a few founder shareholders with a close relationship to having a few dozen unrelated shareholders can be difficult for some shareholders 
for some founders to manage. And as I mentioned, there's a need for a more structured and formal relationship to manage that, and it's going to need regular and transparent reporting to shareholders. But of course, founders don't always get that right, and that can lead to shareholders losing confidence in the business or the founders. It can lead to difficulties getting approvals from shareholders, and in worst cases, it can lead to deadlocks in decision-making or even full-blown legal disputes. And that's a really difficult thing for a founder who's got their mission Mm. of actually getting the business to grow. If they've got a whole lot of time being used to try and deal with shareholders and work out those relationships, that must be quite a a, a time-consuming exercise and distraction potentially. That's right. There's no real simple answer to that other than doing it properly and making sure you've got the right documentation and so forth in place. But having, as I mentioned before, having a holding company as, as, a, as an option is something to think about in this context because although it won't avoid those sort of issues because of fundamentally communication and sort of governance issues, it can lessen the impacts on the business. And that's because by having a holding company, a subsidiary company structure, you're creating a buffer between the business operations and the holding company and the ultimate ownership of the group at the um, holding company level. And what that means in turn is that operational and business decisions are less likely to trigger a need for shareholder approval, which in turn means day-to-day business decisions are less likely to be uh, impacted by disputes or issues at a shareholder level. One common area where shareholder approval is often required by high-growth tech companies is uh, the requirement under the Companies Act that shareholders have to approve major transactions. So what's a major transaction in this context? A major transaction is any transaction with a value or that involves obligations that have a value exceeding 50% of the value of the company's assets. Now, of course, that sounds like a high value and so it shouldn't be triggered very often, but the issue here is that with many tech companies don't actually have much in the way of assets on their balance sheets. So that can mean, even with routine contracts, this can inadvertently trigger the need to go to shareholders for approval under the Companies Act. If you have a holding company structure, then when the operating company wants to enter into one of those significant contracts or even a routine contract that happens to trigger, would otherwise trigger that, tra- that, that approval threshold, you only need the approval of the holding company. You don't need to go further and go out to the external shareholders or the up above that. So that can be a real benefit for having that holding company and operating company split. So you can make sure then that if there is a significant contract at the operating company level, then you're only getting the approval from the holding company. If it's really super significant, mm. then there may be something in the shareholders agreement that requires that shareholder approval, but you can make that decision between the shareholders Mm. at the time they sign up to that shareholders agreement and you can still comply with the Companies Act on the way through for what might be otherwise routine or lower risk contracting. That's exactly right. You can tailor the approval and governance framework to suit and to suit the values you're dealing with and the size of the company and the size of its asset base. If you didn't have that holding company subsidiary company structure then the Companies Act will require you to do that regardless of whether the shareholders care about it and regardless of the significance of the transaction as as a pure dollar value test. Yeah, great. And presumably that has some real world and significant consequences, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not just the hassle or involved in getting shareholder approval in the first place or the costs involved in that. There's actually um, some consequences if you do go to get that approval and it's not given. So one risk, of course, is that shareholders decide not to give approval, and that might not be because of the particular benefits of the transaction. It might be because you're in the middle of a dispute with them or there's some other reason that they're not willing to give approval. 
or it might even be that just not available. They might be overseas and uncontactable. So um, they can use that need or that request for approval as leverage to help them with yeah. some totally unrelated issue that the, they might be Exactly concerning. right. They might be looking to exit the company or something and they say, well, I'll only prove this if you buy my shares, something like that. Right. And the second major implication is under the Companies Act, if you go to shareholders to get approval to a major transaction and a shareholder votes against that, but the other shareholders approve it and the company then decides to go ahead with the transaction, that shareholder who voted against the resolution to approve it then has a right to require the company to buy out their shares. And that is a significant right. It's a key protection in the Companies Act for minority shareholders, but it has a huge impact potentially on the company because a growing tech company won't necessarily have the cash or resources on hand or to buy out its minority shareholders at this sort of time. I mean, it's trying to spend its money on growth and and it needs that capital. In another area uh, where having a holding company can be helpful with respect to ongoing governance and operations of the business relates to asset protection. So if a company encounters uh, difficult trading or runs into financial difficulties or even finds itself on the receiving end of a significant legal claim, then all the company's business and assets are at risk. However, if the business has been set up with an operating company and a holding company structure, then there's more scope to keep valuable assets insulated from those sort of issues. And that is a real context that we often advise our clients on, right? Because they get to that stage and they're actually quite vulnerable. They've got a really great proposition that they can use to, to market and there's lots of potential in it. But also there might be now competitors out there thinking, actually, can we get that company at a good price or what can we do? And mm. sometimes putting up a legal claim against them for mm. whatever the reason might be can be a, a way of actually taking out the competition or just making them vulnerable. Mm. And it's not even necessarily if they're right or they're wrong. It's just the cost of the argument, right? Well, that's, that's right. And uh, if you have a separate company where the, uh, the, the valuable assets, like, for instance, intellectual property, source code, you know, your brand and things like that. If they're isolated in a separate company that's not party to any of these actions, then that might dissuade them from taking the action in the first place. And secondly, if there is an action that ends up being successful against the operating company and the operating company can't pay the relevant claim amount, then of course that means that company will have to be liquidated or wound up. But the assets are sitting not sitting in that company, they're sitting in the holding company. So, you know, those type of assets, and that means that they are therefore protected in that sense. Those assets are still can be made available to the subsidiary by way of some sort of intercompany license or similar, and, and charged for. It is an option you have when you've got that sort of structure where you can do that, and that just gives you a little bit more scope to protect your assets. And that's something that we've helped a number of companies with, right? Where this very structure where you've got the holding company that holds all the valuable IP or the intellectual property, the jewels in the crown if you like, and then there's a licensing arrangement set up between the holding company and the operating mm. company mm. so that the hold co mm. licenses the op co mm -hmm. to be able to use all of that IP. While the opco keeps on developing that IP, then that can revert back to the hold co, exactly. and the opco can still have that ongoing right to use. And yeah. there are a few other tricks and things like that, but yeah. fundamentally, that's the way that it would work, right? Oh, it's exactly right. It also gives you some uh, scope for flexibility if you were to enter into a joint venture or you want to set up another subsidiary or something like that. You can then license that same IP to that other company out of the holding company. And it also helps if they're looking to expand overseas where mm. the operating company mm. might not be New Zealand based and you actually want to Correct. have a separate legal entity 
operating mm-hmm. in a different jurisdiction, which would potentially yes. be subject to different risks and, and laws, right? One thing to just bear in mind there, obviously it requires some extra documentation and, and to manage those transactions financially and from a contractual management perspective. I wouldn't overstate that. It's a common thing that we do, and it's pretty straightforward. And so as we're moving then through that life cycle of the company, and things have gone from good to better, and you've got a bundle of investors sitting in there. One of them might be the founder. You might have some other shareholders in the mix as well. And as circumstances change, we often find that one of those shareholders might want to get their money out. They want to Mm. get their investment out. And so just wondering if you can maybe talk to us a bit about how does having the holding company structure help or actually might even hinder Mm. those goals in, in that situation? overwhelming majority of growth companies will be looking at some stage to exit you know the investors on that they want to make a return on their investment uh, and they want to cash out and that is normally achieved through a what we call a liquidity event or an exit event and inevitably that will involve the sale of the whole business or all the shares in the business so starting with the sale of shares where an external buyer comes along and buys 100% of the shares or wants to then what that involves is all the shareholders, 100% of them, selling all their shares to this external buyer. Now, if they can't all agree, or you can't get everyone's agreement to that sale, then there's often a what's called a drag-along right in the shareholders' agreement, which enables the majority of the shareholders, if they want to do the deal, to then require a small minority of the shareholders to actually take part in that deal as well. It's like a forced exit. So that's the mechanism by which you can deliver 100% of the shares in the company. Uh, to an external buyer. But the problem, of course, is that the first place, the easiest way to do it is get a 100% agreement, but if you can't get 100% agreement and you need to rely on that drag-along right, that involves forcibly requiring some shareholders to sell their shares, and they may resist it, and it can result in disputes, additional costs as you go through that process, and it would certainly just involve a delay, and it can even put the entire transaction at risk if you have to go through a process like that. And I can see that where there's an external buyer Mm. for that, then that creates some distance. But mm. it's also possible that one of the people that wants to actually be the buyer of the whole company mm. is actually one of the existing shareholders yep. too. And so all of those things that you've been talking about apply regardless yep. of who the purchaser is, right? Yeah, and I think you're talking there about um, preemptive rights again. So it's not uncommon, it's not particularly common, but not uncommon, to have a preemptive rights process in your shareholders agreement that has to be stepped through before you can exercise the drag-along right. So what that means is, okay, you've got, you've got a buyer who wants to buy 100% of the shares, you've got a majority of shareholders who want to sell, and you want to drag the minority along. But before you can do that, you first have to offer all the shares that are up for sale to the minority shareholders, because they have a right to decide whether or not themselves to buy them. And now that results, of course, in delay. It results in a potential risk for the buyer of being gazumped. So the buyer's gone through a whole negotiation process to come up with a price, to do some due diligence, to negotiate a deal, only to then have to be uh, to put those shares on the market to the other shareholders and to risk those other shareholders wanting to buy them at the last minute. And, and we've had a deal exactly like that recently where a buyer was put off and decided not to proceed any further because of the risk of being gazumped through that sort of process. So what I'm hearing is that it's absolutely critical at the time you're investing in a company to understand what the rights are under the shareholders agreement and under the constitution of the company Mm -hmm. so that you can anticipate what these scenarios might be when it comes to 
an exit event or a, or a liquidity event and being able to make sure you've got the understanding of what it might look like if you want to be mm. the person mm. in, either, in either of those shoes. So are there any alternative approaches that you can suggest yep. to get around those problems? Yeah, for sure. We'll get onto the structural things in a, in a second, but I guess if there's an issue with being able to deliver the shares in that way because of what, you know those sort of uh, uncertainties or the inability to get everyone to agree, one other alternative is to actually sell the underlying business. So rather than selling the shares to the buyer, you sell the underlying assets and uh, contracts and all that sort of thing. And when you do that, that'll obviously be a major transaction, as we mentioned earlier, and you'd need shareholder approval, but that approval threshold's only 75%, and there's not these drag-along issues and so forth. But, of course, selling the underlying business is just inherently more complicated. You're going to have to transfer every contract, every customer relationship, uh, every asset and all your employees across to the buyer, and that's obviously going to involve more complexity and cost than just simply passing over the shares. Particularly if you've got your assets sitting in a different company to the to the operating business, right? That's just two parties involved in yeah. that asset sale as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point because if you had a single company structure and you sold the underlying assets, then that's fine. You just need, you're still going to need to go out to your wide shareholder base to get it approved. If you did an asset sale and it was under a subsidiary company structure, it's probably going to end up being a similar approval requirement because your shareholders agreement would say you, you have to still get our approval for that. So not really any benefit uh, just from the underlying asset sale approach from having a holding company and subsidiary company structure. But having said that, there is a real benefit to having a holding company and subsidiary company structure because it gives you flexibility or optionality if you, instead of having to sell the underlying assets to, to avoid the drag long rights, you can just sell the shares in the subsidiary. So real simple structure, right? So you've got the holding company that owns the subsidiary all that you do is the, the holding company just passes over the shares in the subsidiary to the new buyer. That will still require shareholder approval, but it avoids all that complexity of having to sell all the underlying business, as I mentioned, and the assets and the employees across and so forth. So there is a real benefit for having a holding company and subsidiary company structure when it comes time to exit. It just gives you optionality. It makes it gives you options about how you can structure it and more likelihood you can give a purchaser comfort that the deal will go ahead without undue risk of being interfered with by minority shareholders who may not want to go ahead with it. And so in that scenario you've just described, where you transfer the shares and sell 100% of the shares in the operating company, with all of the contracts from suppliers and with customers included in that, and then you've also still got assets sitting inside Holdco, the holding company, how do you make sure that those assets then end up with the right party? Would they get transferred into the operating company? You could either transfer them directly to the buyer's company uh, along as part of the shares. You don't just you sell the shares in the subsidiary plus the assets that are in the, in the holding company. That's the normal way of doing it. Got it. And there won't be that many assets in there anyway, and they won't require other people's consent or approval generally. So that's pretty simple. And so I, w- I should say, so that's the exit, gone through most of the benefits of, uh, of holding company, subsidiary company structures, both from a governance perspective and on an exit event and so forth. There are some other areas that are beneficial by having that sort of structure, but we don't really have time to go into them. But uh, we've touched on them already, and I'll just re- re-emphasise those, which are things like entering into joint ventures, expanding into overseas market, you know, acquiring new businesses. It all is, can be useful to have a a holding company and a subsidiary company structure because you can slot in new subsidiaries and so forth. 
And so with that in mind, why doesn't every company start off with this structure? I think fundamentally it relates to the, the desire to keep things simple and to avoid the additional complexity and cost of having multiple companies rather than just one. And it is true that having two companies means you've got two boards, two sets of financial statements, two sets of tax returns. However, I do think many small businesses overestimate the real world additional cost involved in that. And that's because most accounting systems, you know, like Zero, for instance, they very easily accommodate having two companies in much the same way as they um, accommodate financial reporting for different divisions within a company or business. And given that you know, the structure we talked about with a holding company, operating company, will have almost all the transactions will be happening through just one of those companies, i.e. the operating company. There's not actually much extra to do uh, in terms of financial reporting and, and transactions by having the holding company in the structure. And although you do have two separate boards, uh, we have a lot of groups of companies where that's not a problem. You have the same members of those two boards and they have their meetings in a way that decisions are made for both companies uh, and, and documented clearly, so it's not really a, a big issue in practice. And we often find that although you might have the same membership on both boards, there are definitely some key things that are useful to get special advice on at the time relating to mm. that, right, so that you then don't assume that you've got a whole range of other nominated directors and, and oh, such you, like coming yeah. into play, but that's all manageable. That is, you, you're dead right. You need to make sure you respect the structure. You respect the fact that there are two companies and decisions are, are properly made for each of those companies and not just and not sort of combined together too much, but that's easily manageable and, and we can help with that for sure. And so, look, overall, look, there's some marginal additional cost and complexity to having that extra holding company, but I would, you know, recommend uh, companies that are at that setup stage or early, very early stages to talk to your accountant and your lawyer to understand what the real world costs are in, in practical terms before assuming it's going to be highly complicated and highly expensive because you may find that, that for that little bit of extra cost, you know, you can access a whole lot of more benefits. Well, Rodney, thank you so much for sharing that insight and that expertise with us. It's been great to talk to you, but unfortunately, that's as much as we've got time for today. Not a problem. It's been great to be here and to the listeners, thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please remember to rate, review or follow The Tech Suite wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can subscribe to receive new episodes directly in your inbox via our website at minterallison.co.nz.